Good to see you all. And uh, yeah, as both said, my name's Ollie. I'm married to Debs. We have two little boys, um, Caleb and Kai. Kept causing havoc over there somewhere. And um, it's such a joy to be part of this community. And I get the privilege of carrying on with our Philippians series. So if you've been around, you'll know that we've been working through Philippians for quite a while. We took a bit of break and then we came back. And so this morning we're looking at Philippians 2, verse 19 to 30. Uh, and it's about Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And I've titled it Living Examples of Christian Servant Leadership. There we go. And um, yeah, so... If you've been around for a while, you remember we worked through chapter, that we've been going through chapter two. We looked at the glory of the gospel encapsulated in the Messiah's poem. You guys remember that? Of how God, in order to save us, um, demonstrated the most radical, inconceivable humility by deliberately emptying himself of his divine glory and power and coming in the form of a poor and suffering servant, Jesus disguised and virtually unrecognizable as the king of glory, choosing over and over again that which our first father Adam did not, total submission to God, not grasping at his godhood, though it was rightfully his, but relinquishing his rights, his riches, his royalty, and finally his own righteous life, allowing himself to be disgraced on the cross in order to purchase back this race of rebel humanity that had desired to be God over our own lives. He did all of this to purchase for us salvation. And as we heard from Paul's preach last week, it is a salvation that we do not earn and can never earn. It's a free gift that we receive through faith, but it's also a salvation that changes us. A salvation that we get to work out together in the context of a community of grace and in the midst of a world of trials and temptations, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, as Paul the Apostle calls it, so that we might shine as lights in the world, becoming signposts of God's salvation as we hold fast to the word of life. And though this is utterly impossible to do in and of ourselves, God himself assures us and gives us the stunning promise that he himself, with all his divine and limitless resources, is present in us and working in us to grace us with what we so sorely lack. Both the desire and the ability, both the readiness and the power to choose his way over ours, to get on his page and joyfully carry on his mission. And so, that's just a bit of a summary of of what happened last week. And then after that, Paul shifts his focus in this letter from these big headline doctrinal issues to something of a personal tone here in chapter 2, verse 19 to 30. And so here he talks about people, specifically two guys called Timothy and Epaphroditus. And if you're anything like me, probably when you read through scripture, you like get all excited when you, you have those big headline moments and the big doctrinal stuff. And then you get to these things where Paul's kind of talking and he's personal greetings and he's, he's talking about people and you, you kind of like check out a bit. Um, <laughs> and you kind of wait for the next meaty section. So uh, I'm a surfer and I've 
been watching a bit of the Vans US Open, which is a surf contest that happens in Huntington Beach, California, and it's an interesting wave because it's got this section out at the back, which is quite nice, and you know, the surfers can do one or two nice moves out there, and then it kind of goes flat and soggy in the middle, and, and sort of, the surfers have to do this thing called the Huntington Hop, which is like an ungainly flapping thing to try and maintain speed to get through to the inside, which is this next meaty section where they can do another nice move. And, and it's kind of like you're in one of those things when you read through a section of scripture like this, you kind of like doing this awkward, ungainly hop as you wait to get to the next meaty section, you know? And, um, but actually, this is such a beautiful section, and, and it shows us the realness of human relationships and lives as carriers of the gospel. These are real people. And so, I want to encourage us not to just gloss over um, um, sections of scripture like this, but to actually mine it for the rich treasure that is in there. And so I want us to read today's text together from verse 19. Paul writing says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I just want to pray quickly. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you for the deep and rich treasures that you've hidden there, Holy Spirit. And thank you that you intend for us to mine them and to bring them out and to apply them in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as we meditate on this passage of Scripture this morning, that you would inform our minds, that you would establish us in the truth, that you would deepen our faith and our trust in you as the only wise God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we exegete this verse for, for verse, how many of you picked up the link here in verse 20 to 21 with something that Paul said earlier in the letter? I'll just read verse 20 quickly. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. How many of you picked up that link? Back in the early parts of the chapter, remember, verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so, what's Paul doing as he outlines his ministry plans and desires for the Philippian church? He's using this opportunity to not only point them back to the self-donating example of Jesus, 
but also to how this salvation by grace is worked out and fleshed out in living human examples of humble servant leadership. And so with that in mind, let's go verse by verse from verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And so the first thing we note here is that Paul, who's languishing in prison, he's got a Roman soldier chained to him on either side as he writes this letter, hopes in the Lord Jesus. He hopes in the Lord Jesus. And I felt in preparing this that I need to speak about hope. Because there are some here, as we heard this morning, who are battling to hold on to hope. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed at the reality of a significant loss that you've experienced. Perhaps someone you love dearly is wrestling a terminal disease and the prayed for healing has not come yet. Maybe you're wrestling with the growing negative sentiment around the future of this beautiful country. As South Africans, we are being constantly pelted by the advancing armada of bad news, whether it be economic, political, social, whatever. And many of us are battling to maintain hope that things could actually improve. Perhaps your work is really tough right now. Your business is struggling. Your finances are under pressure and you can't see a way out. You're clinging on grimly with white knuckles, fighting cynicism and despair. Maybe as a parent, you're deeply concerned for the direction your children's lives are taking and the world that they're growing up in. And you're tempted to retreat into cynicism and resignation. Author Paul Miller says that hope is a uniquely Christian vision. He points out that before Jesus came, Greek thought basically only had two ways of processing life, and it's expressed in the the drama that they had. You guys will know. They had either tragedy or comedy. In the one vision, tragedy, life is just hard. And the only way to get through it was to be like the Stoics, to endure it, to grit your teeth, bear your bear your knuckles and just endure life. And in the other vision, life is just fun. And you had the Epicureans who coined the famous phrase, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so to them, life was just a party and it doesn't matter anyway, so let's just enjoy ourselves. But with the coming of Jesus and his resurrection, a new vision was born, whereby we are enabled to look at our present reality without denial but at the same time to look with the eyes of faith and hope to a good future where God will set all things right and make all things new. And so what is Christian hope? Firstly, it is not wishful thinking. You guys remember Franklin Roosevelt after the Great Depression and trying to bring America and the war trying to bring America back. He said, coined this phrase, have faith in faith itself. And it was this sort of this unfounded optimism that, that sort of um, would save the day. But the problem is it doesn't really have any substance to it, having faith in faith itself. Faith needs to have some kind of ground of believing in. So Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not positive thinking. It is also not fatalistic resignation. God does not expect us to be so spiritual that we just surrender without ever expressing our hearts to Him. He wants us to be real, and He wants the real you to meet the real Jesus. He wants us to live in submitted but joyful hope, not 
despair or resignation. So Christian hope is the confident expectation of God's goodness. It sees the current reality, yes, sometimes with great mourning and anguish, but rather than giving way to despair, it looks to the substance of God's goodness reflected in his great and precious promises to those who believe. And it sees the God who, against all hope, raised Jesus from the dead. Christian hope is not just desire, which is the way we tend to use the word hope most often. You know, I hope that the economy will turn. I hope that our government will root out corruption this year. I hope that the waves will be good tomorrow. I hope that my husband will come home earlier from work today and play with the kids and get some of their destructive energy out. (laughs) Because we may desire these things, but we have no certainty that they will actually materialize and happen. Christian hope is not just a wistful desire that God will restore all things, turn every bad thing for good, and wipe away every tear from our eyes at His return. It is the confident expectation of the certain fact that His goodness is coming and will come, founded on the faithfulness of His character and the sureness of His promises. He is not a mean Father who creates expectation in us only to dash it. No, He is the perfect Father, and when He restores and makes every sad thing come untrue, there will be no question that His way was the wisest and the best way. Therefore, we do not give in to despair, but we gird our minds with the truth and allow our hearts to live in this hope. So coming back to Paul, his situation is deeply uncertain. He's facing possible execution at the whim of a tyrant, Caesar, and has no control over his future. Any day might be his last. But still, his hope is in the Lord Jesus, who is alive and at work in the world, who is building his church despite the opposition and oppression of men through the ages, and who is faithful to his promises to redeem even the worst things that happen in this world and make them work for good. And what is extraordinary about Paul is his deep concern and love for the church, the people of God, despite his own suffering and the sheer stress of not knowing whether he's going to be executed today or tomorrow. In his frustration and his imprisonment, he still feels deeply the weight of concern for their well-being and for the forward motion of the gospel into the world. In fact, we are told that it causes him great anxiety when he considers the struggles and persecutions they are going through. To hear news of the Philippian church will bring great cheer to him and encourage him to keep going. In those days, one could not just pick up the phone and have a Skype conference or you know, pop them an email to see how things are going. No, news had to be carried over long and often dangerous distances by willing human vessels. And so Paul chose this guy, Timothy, as his trusted representative. Why Timothy? Who is Timothy? Timothy's name in Greek means one who honors God. He was a native of a town called Lystra, which Paul and Barnabas visited in conjunction with the first missionary journey from 41 to 40, uh, around 41 to 47 AD. We see that in Acts 14. And here God did incredible miracles and confirmed the preaching of the gospel. Um, so powerfully, and they won a large number of disciples in that region. 
And here also the Jews rose up in opposition and they actually stoned Paul and left him for dead outside the city. And there's this amazing story where the disciples gathered around Paul and he rose up and he went back into the city. And so Timothy, then a young man, was probably among that throng. And perhaps this was his first encounter with Paul, seeing this man preaching the gospel so boldly, with such convincing power, with demonstrations of divine power, and then being left battered, bruised, and bloodied for, for pre- proclaiming that message. That left an indelible and lasting mark on Timothy. Timothy, it tells us, uh, was the son of a devout Jewish mother and a Greek Gentile father. We're told in 2 Timothy that he was tutored in the Old Testament scriptures from, intimate, uh, from infant, infancy and had grown up with examples of sincere faith in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Although Timothy's father does not seem to have been a believer, we know that Paul saw something in this young man and invested deeply in him. He considered himself Timothy's spiritual father, calling him my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and my true son in the faith. In the letter 1 Timothy. By the time Paul and Silas returned to the area um, for the second missionary journey, which was around 47 to 51 AD, Timothy had developed a good reputation in the Christian community. And Paul asked him to join their journey as an assistant. And here he learned to work side by side with the great apostle in his work of opening up new regions to the gospel and establishing churches and strengthening existing churches. And so... History lesson is over. But out of that experience, this is what Paul said to him, said of him. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So remember what we said earlier. Paul's using this opportunity to highlight examples of what it is to have the mind of Christ. And Timothy is a shining example of how understanding the gospel, that Christ put us first, helps us and enables us to put others first. This is what Jesus did. He was genuinely concerned for our welfare. So he came to earth and served us and gave his life for us. Timothy is a trustworthy and effective Christian leader because he genuinely cares about and loves those he ministers to. This isn't just a job, some professional exercise for him. He's not a detached dispenser of truth, but a man whose heart has been deeply touched by the gospel. Alexander Alexander McLaren says, Unless our hearts go out to people, we shall never reach their hearts. We may talk to them forever, but unless we have this loving sympathy, we might as well be silent. It is possible to pelt people with the gospel and to produce the effect of flinging stones at them. Much Christian work comes to nothing, mainly for that reason. It's quite a potent little quote there. Then in verse 22, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy was more than just a familiar companion and a great comfort to Paul in his imprisonment. He was a tested leader who could be trusted to deal effectively and wisely with the most delicate problems. Why? Because his motives were not distorted by self-interest. 
He was submitted to the agenda of the Lord Jesus and could be relied upon to contend for Christ's agenda for the Philippian church. The word proved or proof or worth is the Greek noun dokime. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, probably not. But it means test or ordeal. And here it has the idea, the experience of going through a test with special reference to the result, standing a test, character. And so this word group is used of scrutinizing ore to see if it is of mixed alloy or if it's pure metal. It's like gold refined in the fire, tested, purified, proved. And scripture gives us a number of indications about how Timothy's worth was proven. And I just want to, if we can throw them up there. The first is he's left behind in Berea in Acts 17 to continue the work after Paul is forced to leave when his life is threatened. Paul knows he can leave him, he can trust this guy, he leaves him there to carry on while he gets out of town. During a time of persecution, he's sent to Thessalonica to strengthen the believers in their faith. He's sent to Macedonia from Ephesus with a similar mission. He's sent as Paul's emissary to bring teaching and healing to the messed up church in Corinth. He's apparently sent to Philippi and perhaps returns with a monetary gift from that church for Paul. He's instructed how to appoint elders and deacons in the churches. He accompanies Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem and he's at his side during his imprisonment. So he's a man whose character, whose faithfulness have been proven and tested over and over again in difficult situations. And it just highlights for us that before someone can be released into a position of leadership in the church, there needs to be proof, there needs to be evidence of godly character. We cannot afford to be in a hurry to lay hands on someone and, in, and release them into a position of responsibility over people's lives, merely because they seem gifted, or because we really need leaders right now, which we do. That's why when we speak of releasing elders and deacons, it gives the idea that these people have been functioning in that role for some time. We're releasing them because there's something of, of a recognition of God's call on their life that has become evident through practice. And so it's not jarring or surprising to the church when they're appointed. It's a natural flow. And there's a solid process in the background. Because great damage is done to the church when insecure, self-absorbed leaders are prematurely promoted. By contrast, how great a blessing it is to the body when it is led by leaders who have submitted to Christ's maturing process in them. Who have allowed the trials of life to strip away their need for the affirmation and approval of men. Their need to control others in order to feel significant and adequate in themselves. I want us to focus in a bit on, on verse 22b, where Paul says, How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. This is a beautiful picture of the mentoring relationship that Paul had with Timothy. Tim, uh, Paul never married and he had no biological children on the one hand. And then on the other hand, Timothy's father wasn't a believer and so had little spiritual input in his life. I just want to uh, share some thoughts around Paul's wor uh, wording. 
I want you to think about the way a young man learned a trade, whether it was farming or carpentry or tent making. It was by observing and working side by side with his father, day in and day out, learning not only the skills, but also the attitudes and values necessary to perform the work. And something of the masculine essence of what it is to be a man is passed on in the close, sometimes maddening, daily contact and toil. The boy learned how to work hard from watching his father strain and sweat. He learned how to deal with frustrations and difficult situations by seeing how his father handled them. Another aspect of this relationship that is brought out by Paul's wording is that this is not some hired hand or wage slave clocking in and clocking out, working for the weekend. There is an unquestioned loyalty and a commonality of vision. A son has the same or should have the same end goal and work as an heir, not a hireling who's looking for a stepping stone onto the next career opportunity. At the same time, a father can ask more of a son, can expect greater loyalty and devotion from him. There's also a reciprocal tenderness, a longing for the boy to grow and succeed and develop into his full potential. And so I want us to pause and just consider our own lives for a moment and ask ourselves the question, Who has come alongside you to teach you? And what potential leader in your church community or in your workspace, in your life group, needs someone to come alongside them? Do you have a person or two that you are mentoring as a son with a father or as a daughter with a mother? Let's consider these things and put them into practice. Then he talks about serving. He served with me in the gospel. And there's several words in the Greek for serving. Uh, the, one, the most common one is diakoneo, from which we get our word deacon. means to serve. But the word served here in this verse is remarkable. It's the Greek word uh, verb douleo, which is to act or conduct oneself as one in total service to another. Perform the duties of a slave. Serve. Obey. And the idea here is that we don't serve Jesus out of preference, but it is the high honor of serving Jesus as a willing slave. To Paul, this is not the forced service of an unwilling slave under a cruel master, but the joyfully self-surrendered loving service of one who owes everything to his Lord and Master. Finally, Timothy's apprenticeship to Paul has taken place in the gospel. He says he has served with me in the gospel. And so the discipling or mentoring relationship is not just about an employee learning a trade. It's far better described as a father and son or a mother and daughter on a common mission, working and serving together on a great and costly endeavor. This is not about building an organization or ramping up the bottom line. This is about the evangelion, the proclamation of the best news ever, the redemption of the world. It is a life or death quest with incredibly high stakes and eternal consequences and rewards. And as such, the bonds formed between co-workers in the struggle are like those formed by men who have endured the hardships of war together. Alexander McLaren again says, The men who have marched side by side through a campaign, through a war or battle, are knit together as nothing else would bind them. Even two horses drawing one carriage will have ways and feelings and a common understanding which they would never have attained in any other way.
Great. So then in verse 25, Paul begins to talk about uh, this guy called Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Paul says that he's waiting to send Timothy until he knows what will happen to him, basically whether he's going to be executed or not. But right now he intends to send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had come from Philippi as a representative from that church to bring a gift of money to Paul and to minister to him in his imprisonment. And Epaphroditus had fallen seriously ill while on this mission. He'd nearly died, causing much distress to his family and his friends back home when they heard about it. And note that Epaphroditus must have been a bold man, a warrior for the gospel. To take a journey like that and identify himself with a prisoner in a Roman dungeon was risky. It was to put his own life in danger. Listen to what Paul says of him in in response. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. It's beautiful on on the back of what we've been talking about, the army of God. So Paul honored and esteemed him as another co-laborer in the gospel who was willing, like a soldier, to endure great hardship in the war against the, fl- uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But here we see that though he was a very useful co-worker in the gospel, this did not mean that Christians who are growing in devotion to the gospel lose normal human feelings. They still miss their families and their home. They still feel anxiety and longing, and sometimes they need a rest from their labors. Paul, in his work as an apostle, wasn't about just shifting chess pieces around on a board, like some Christian organizations where people are treated like they're expendable, like Christian robots, you know, like you're here for five years and then boom, you go to the next place for five years. No, he understood the human side of ministry and clearly recognized that it would do no good to keep Epaphroditus in Rome. So he sent him home for his own recuperation and restoration, as well as the comfort of his friends and family. Verse 27, it says, Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Here again, we see another glimpse of Paul's great heart for people and for the churches that he loved. We may think of Paul, this great apostle who, sacrificed and suffered so much for the gospel as being almost robot-like, you know, like Christian Robocop in his strength and ability. But his writings would indicate the exact opposite. He says that the sparing of Epaphroditus was a great mercy to him too, for he was a human being and he would have been broken by the added sorrow of the loss of a dear brother. In his letter to uh, to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 28, after a long list of the many personal hardships he endured in his service of the gospel, Paul adds a final element. And he says, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure in me, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul frequently admits the deep parental concern he felt for the churches he oversaw. And he uses this word, anxiety. We know that because of this anxiety, Paul wrestled daily in prayer for those he cared for. His care was personal, naming specific people and caring for their needs. 
And this is just another example of how Paul, displaying the mind of Christ by looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and allowing himself, think about it, to be deprived of the much-needed comfort of a companion and assistant so that others might be comforted. Verse 29, then he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul ends this section by exhorting the Philippians to receive and honor Epaphroditus as he returned. He anticipates ahead of time, and he does not want them to see him as a failure because he returned early, because he got sick and he had to come home. And so he reminds them of Epaphroditus' courage and willingness to risk his life for the cause of Jesus. It shows us how deeply concerned Paul was to protect the unity of their work and the love and affection within the churches. And so he takes steps to see that a critical spirit doesn't arise. He knows the human condition. He knows how prone we Christians are to shoot our own wounded. And this is why he devotes so many sections in his letters to commending workers, to giving greetings to churches, to keep them in touch with each other, and to instruct his co-workers. Why? Because the gospel is relational at heart. Without strong relationships and unity, our work is greatly hampered. And so I hope that when you read these sections of Scripture in future, something of the richness of the relational equity that the gospel requires of us would would just be highlighted for us. And we'd see something of the depth of relationships and the genuine love that is expressed in these letters from Paul. And that it would inspire us to love one another as God's community. So that's that section of Scripture for this morning. I'd like us to just pray and then... um, we're going to take communion. So yeah, if you could just bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this deep and stirring reminder of how you did not consider your own privileges and rights, but you gave them up for us. And you came for us, Lord. And at the same time, as the gospel begins to work in us, we are changed, Lord God. The composition of our heart changes so that we do not long, no longer consider only ourselves and our own interests, but those of the others around us, Lord God. I thank you that the gospel is a gospel of love and a gospel of reaching out to others, Father, as we've heard in so many beautiful ways this morning. Father, I ask that you would impress upon our hearts the reality of what Christ did for us, so that we may love others, Father. We may consider their needs as more significant and important than our own. And that by doing so, Lord, we may be increasingly effective signposts to a world that does not know you. In Jesus' name, amen.